listeners. Welcome to the first ever episode from the series of the Woke Settlers podcast. I'm your host, Emma Villas, and today we will be talking about climate change and what Indigenous communities are doing about it. This is episode one, Indigenous People and Climate Change. Remember when you were younger? Think about where you grew up. You probably knew all the best shortcuts to get to school, your best friend's house, and the stores. You knew which trees had the best shade, which ones you could climb, and which ones you could get fruit from. You knew how the sunrises and sunsets looked. This place was your domain. You knew it like the back of your hand. Now think of indigenous communities having this much information but so, so much more, at least by 10 times, as they have been collecting and analyzing their environment for decades. This information about their land has been passed down from elders for generations. Now, as indigenous communities are all different and they all operate in different ways, each with their own customs and traditions, I will be talking and focusing on specific groups from a specific area the Anishinaabe peoples, more specifically the Eastern Anishinaabe peoples from the Trent and Peterborough area. To understand what indigenous communities are doing about climate change, we must first understand their connection to the land. The Eastern Anishinaabe have a strong connection to the land, especially spiritually. Walking in harmony with nature is very important to them. The Anishinaabe have a respect for nature, so not only to Mother Earth, but water as well. Water has a cultural importance to them. It's thought of as a life-giving force that's used in many traditional ceremonies. Women especially have a unique relationship with water. They are known as water carriers. The connection of being a water carrier has to do with pregnancy and with the ability for a woman to give life. It is thought that women have a sacred connection to water as humans are technically born in the water of their mother's stomach. The earth even is said to be female and her blood being water. They say it flows through her, nourishing and purifying her. The Anishinaabe women have a responsibility to care for water, and women all over Canada are raising concerns about it. Matrina Fisher, an Anishinaabe grandmother from Blood Vein First Nations, explains it well. She says, They say women are water carriers because we all have 90% water in our body. For a woman, they carry life for nine months in their womb, and we are all born in the water. We come from the water. Here's a story about how the women have been taking action and caring for water. So in 2003, a group of Anishinaabe women, led by grandmother Josephine Madman of the Three Fires Lodge, started the Mother Earth Water Walks, also known as the M-E-W-W's, to raise awareness of water issues and how women take care of water. The first of these walks was in the spring of 2003, 
when the group walked around Lake Superior with a copper pail of water to draw attention to the need for action regarding water issues. These walks happen each year around the Great Lakes. The MEWWs have caused many women to take up the role of speaking and caring for water, renewing their traditional responsibilities. Another way many indigenous communities, not just the Anishinaabe, care for their land is through using the seventh generation principle. To explain this, I reached out to Bob Joseph, the founder of Indigenous Corporate Training, Inc., who's written many informative books on indigenous relations. I asked him, what is the seven generation rule? What does it mean to you? And what's its connection to the land? Here's what he said. The seventh generation principle is based on an ancient Iroquois philosophy that the decisions we make today should result in a sustainable world seven generations into the future. Basically, it says our kids, 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 kids should be able to live here given the decisions that we're making today on how to utilize the resources within our territories. I know it's an Iroquois philosophy, and uh, I'm not Iroquois, but certainly from where I come from in the uh, Kwakwakiwak on the northeast corner of Vancouver Island in the adjacent mainland, it's something that we think of as well, too. It's definitely a principle where we worry about our kids. Uh, part of that comes from residential schools and the post-confederation assimilation policy. Um, that need, that urge to hang on to your cultural identity, definitely tied, tied to the land base. And so very uh, important concept that way when it comes to uh, a principle. And um, of course, sustainability fits right into that. When I think about it from an indigenous perspective, um, it's uh, definitely... Uh, fits that worldview. The creator, as I was taught, has given us these lands and resources that they're ours to use, to protect, and to benefit from. So those are sort of uh, the three sustainability objectives. And, and that's for forever. Our Really, our worldview is a custodial worldview. I'm simply looking after it for the next generation, or as the uh, seventh generation principle says, for the next generations so that they can be here and they can enjoy. Um, and of course, um, tying it back to the land, it's land given to us by the creator. Thank you, Bob, for taking time to do this. All right, so now we understand that the seven generation rule has a lot to do with sustainability, concerning not only the land for generations, but water, natural resources, energy, and animals as well. Climate change is really real. I've been seeing the effects myself, and I'm sure you have too. Winter is getting all wonky. It's 25 degrees and sunny one day, and the next day it's snowing, all in the middle of May. But the indigenous people are on the front lines of climate change. It affects them a lot more, and they've been seeing the effects for much longer. Elders can't predict the weather patterns anymore. 
some communities could tell how the next winter would be simply by looking at the stars and moon. Foods and medicine that used to be easily found are now becoming scarcer or even disappearing. For the people living in the north, like the Inuit, their land is melting into the oceans and breaking into the ocean. They have fewer animals to hunt as they are also dying from climate change. These changes are causing a lot of hardships for the indigenous people. They have to adapt to these new changes. Some of these changes may even cause death, like not finding the medicine to cure people, or the snow that fell into the ocean had houses on it. Here's a segment of one of the organizations we will be talking about later, um, Climate Action Change. They're talking about the changes they've been seeing. There are things happening on the land that are very disturbing. Some of our lakes have become unswimmable. Some of our well water has become undrinkable. Elders can't predict a lot of the weather patterns or what is known in our traditional ecological knowledge. It's affecting the maple. It affects the trees. Some of the birds are not even flying south anymore. The medicines that we used to be able to find, we can't find them anymore. We know that the animals are going to suffer. And if the animals suffer and the land suffers, we're going to suffer. Communities are flipping into the ocean in the Arctic, or their houses are literally sinking into the permafrost. And it feels like the only people that are like being like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Have been indigenous communities. Ariel Duranger, a member of the Athabasca Chippewa First Nations is the executive director, mother, indigenous rights and climate justice advocate. In an interview with Climate Reality, she says this about climate change. You know, I think one of the most interesting things is that we have to think about is that indigenous peoples don't just live on the front lines. We're not just being impacted by things, but we actually house a lot of really important and critical information and knowledge about ecosystems that are becoming more and more critical to achieving climate stabilization. You know, the IPCC report that just came out a couple months ago stated that we have to protect and conserve the biodiversity that's left on this planet. What's really interesting is that 80% of the world's biodiversity exists within indigenous lands and territories. Our communities aren't just feeling the impacts, but we actually have key solutions. I found what Ariel said to be very interesting, especially the fact that 80% of the world's biodiversity is within indigenous lands and that they are responsible for the climate stabilization that we have right now. Um, she mentioned the IPCC the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they were actually tasked with bringing together leading scientists and researchers from around the world to file reports on the status of climate change. They warned failing to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius will result in increased risks of major adverse impacts like floods, droughts, food insecurity, poverty, and a mass die-off of the ocean's coral reefs by as soon as 2040, which is much earlier than previously anticipated. To achieve this, the world only has 10 years until 2030 to reduce emissions by 45% below 2010 levels. While I was doing my research, I found a quote that I really liked and I liked how it explained the whole situation. Arshad Kalai Zai 
PhD student in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences said, quote, These communities are not responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, yet they are the ones being affected by the biggest emitters, unquote. I find this super unfair. Not only are they the ones preserving the biodiversity in nature, but they're living the worst side effects. There are reasons why indigenous communities have started their own climate change organizations instead of helping the ones that have already been founded. While the wider environmental community and the rest of us might benefit from gaining their knowledge, indigenous communities have no guarantee that their cultural values, secrets, and traditions will be respected if they offer it. For many indigenous groups, Losing control over anything from their tradition, knowledge, dress, imagery, or even name is an all too common story. And it's not always clear what, if any, legal resources tribes have when they find themselves in these situations. Preston Hardison says, quote, It's both a risk and an opportunity for indigenous people, unquote. According to Hardison, many elders feel like they'd like to help the world heal, but they want their knowledge to be employed in the right way, without any sort of exploitation. For example, when Inuit hunters near Saks Harbor said they saw thunder over the sea, Western scientists argued and said there's no way as it was still too cold. However, when a thunderstorm happened later that day, it turned out the hunters were right. And this isn't only in Canada. This is around the world. Here's another example. In the land down under, aka Australia, indigenous peoples of Australia's Northern Territory have said that a group of birds they call firehawks control fire by carrying burning sticks to new locations in their beaks or talons, therefore setting fire to the land to snatch up their prey. However, the scientists didn't believe them, and it took them researching it to finally accept this theory. This is just one example in thousands that show how undervalued indigenous communities' opinions are all over the world. Now, Let's talk about the organizations that are doing something. The first one we already briefly mentioned earlier. It's the one based in Northern Canada, Indigenous Climate Action. It's an Indigenous-led organization guided by Indigenous people from communities and regions across the country. Here's a segment of them explaining what they do in their own video. We need to stop doing what we've been doing and begin something new. That's where this idea of Indigenous climate action has really come from. This idea that Indigenous peoples aren't just the first to be impacted, but can be the first people to provide solutions that are grounded in more than just economic solutions. Canada and its whole system, its whole economic paradigm, is fundamentally out of sync with what real 
tangible action on climate looks like. What I see from grassroots movements like ICA, Idle No More, they're putting together plans that are ambitious and something that actually reflects the type of knowledges that we're talking about all the time when we talk about indigenous knowledge. We are our own experts. We don't have to translate ourselves all the time through the lens of the mainstream. We want to work towards a recognition of our fundamental role as, uh, as the leaders in this discussion. Because we can't just be addressing climate from a science perspective. We have to be addressing it from a human rights perspective and an indigenous rights perspective. Indigenous climate actions and other indigenous-led initiatives and mobilizations are going to be critical to making that happen in the most effective way. The second organization is just as great. It's called TRACS. Stands for Trent Aboriginal Cultural Knowledge and Science. It is an educational program which provides hands-on experience for youth interested in the intersections of Indigenous and Western science. It's a youth program running through Trent's Indigenous Environmental Science Department and the Kawartha World Issues Center. They spend their days in the teepee, the lab, the fields, and the forest as they explore knowledge, integration, the weaving of Indigenous culture knowledge, and science to promote a broader perspective. The third organization, which is another Trent-based one, is called the Youth Circle for Mother Earth. It's a project that aims to create and support a cross-cultural network of young Indigenous and non-Indigenous environmental leaders so they become lifelong ambassadors for nature and conservation. The project is led by Plenty Canada, Walpole Island Heritage Centre, the Indigenous Environmental Institute at Trent University in Ontario Nature. Youth Climate Lab is the fourth and final organization. It's a global organization that accelerates youth-led climate policy, projects, and businesses, which are partnered with Indigenous communities. They design projects that empower and support youth under the age of 30 to unleash their creativity and innovation to build the futures they want. Youth, particularly those on the front lines of climate change, can and must be part of these solutions. These Indigenous organizations are only the beginning that's it for today thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any more episodes stay woke bye for now